0: Chapter 19 of Abraham Lincoln: A History, Volume 9. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Marianne. Abraham Lincoln: A History, Volume 9, by John Hay and John George Nicolay. Chapter 19. Reconstruction. We have related in former chapters the successive acts of President Lincoln on the question of Reconstruction, the appointment of military governors in insurrectionary states, his Amnesty and Reconstruction Proclamation of December eighth, 1863, the local measures to organize loyal state governments in Arkansas, Louisiana, and Tennessee under that proclamation, his veto of the Reconstruction Act, passed by Congress in July 1864 and his announcement in the proclamation explaining his veto that he declined to commit himself inflexibly to any exclusive plan the difficulty of effecting reconstruction strictly in conformity with any assumed legal or constitutional theories appears clearly enough in the case of virginia it will be remembered that when the spontaneously chosen wheeling convention of august eighteen sixty one repudiated the succession ordinance of the richmond convention the two houses of congress recognized the restored state government of virginia having governor pierpoint as its executive head by admitting to seats the senators sent to washington by the reconstructed legislature and the representatives elected by popular vote full reconstruction being thus recognized by both the executive and legislative departments of the national government within two years from the time of this recognition West Virginia was organized and admitted to the Union as a separate state, leaving the remaining territory of Virginia within the recognition and rights accorded the whole of the original state. As soon as West Virginia was admitted, Governor Pierpoint, with the archives and personnel of the reconstructed state government, removed from Wheeling to Alexandria and continued the executive functions which the President and Congress had recognized before the state was divided the terms of the representatives in congress had expired and within the diminished territorial limits with a single exception no new elections were held which were satisfactory to the house of representatives under its constitutional prerogative to admit or reject but the senators elected for longer terms remained in their seats in unquestioned exercise of their functions representing in its full authority and power the legislative presence of the state of virginia in the senate and in the union and this was but repeating the action which the senate had taken in the case of tennessee and of andrew johnson as its loyal united states senator and by the house of representatives in the cases of horace maynard and andrew j clements but while constitutional theory was thus fulfilled and perfect the practical view of the matter certainly presented occasion for serious criticism the state government which governor pierpoint brought from wheeling to alexandria could make no very imposing show of personal influence official emblems or practical authority the territorial limits in which it could pretend to exercise its functions were only such as lay within the union military lines a few counties contiguous to washington two counties on the eastern shore the vicinage of fort monroe and the cities of norfolk and portsmouth the bulk of what remained of the original state lay south and west of richmond subordinate and tributary to the rebel capital and government nevertheless governor pierpoint made the best of his diminished jurisdiction gathered a little legislature about him at alexandria which went through the forms of enacting laws and even ventured upon the expedient of authorizing the election of a state convention by an act passed december twenty first eighteen sixty three under which act delegates were elected who assembled in convention on february thirteenth eighteen sixty four this convention remained in session until april seventh on which day they adopted and published an amended constitution for the state of virginia which among other changes declared that slavery and involuntary servitude except for crime is hereby abolished and prohibited in this state forever. an ordinance was also adopted on april fourth providing for the establishment of the restored government of virginia under this ordinance and amended constitution governor pierpoint carried on his administration clearly not with the normal health and vigor of an average state government and yet showing within its circumscribed and fluctuating limits a degree of popular acceptance or to say the least of popular toleration that justified its continued recognition under the constitutional theory under which the president and the congress had acknowledged and recognized it before the division of the state the details of governor pierpoint's administration are of interest to general history only so far as they touch the questions of constitutional authority which were raised and in one of which the opinion and interference of president lincoln were directly invoked during the spring and summer of eighteen sixty four the city of norfolk lay within the command of general b f butler and under him of brigadier general g f shepley and a question arose between the civil authorities under governor pierpoint and the military authorities under butler about the regulation of the liquor traffic in norfolk and vicinity the civil authorities wished to continue the collection of licenses imposed by existing virginia laws the military authorities undertook to give a few firms a monopoly of the importation in order to keep it under better control when the small retailers refused to pay their licenses under virginia laws they were indicted in the local courts and to circumvent these indictments general shepley issued an order on june twenty second eighteen sixty four providing that On the day of the ensuing municipal election in the city of Norfolk, a poll will be opened at the several places of voting, and separate ballot boxes will be kept open during the hours of voting, in which voters may deposit their ballots, yes or no, upon the following question. Those in favor of continuing the present form of municipal government during the existence of military occupation will vote yes. Those opposed to it will vote no naturally enough governor pierpoint resented this action and immediately issued a proclamation protesting against it as a revolutionary proceeding in violation of the constitution of the united states adding no loyal citizen therefore is expected to vote on the proposed question and repeated his criticism in a vigorous pamphlet in which he descanted upon the abuses of military power upon this general butler took up the cudgel in behalf of his subordinate and in a general order dated june thirtieth discussed the incident at some length in the pungent phraseology which he knew how to use upon occasion, alluding to Pierpoint as, a person who calls himself governor, pretending to be the head of the restored government of Virginia, which government is unrecognized by the Congress, laws, and Constitution of the United States. The General's order further recited that, as the loyal citizens of Norfolk had voted against the further trial of the experiment of municipal government, Therefore, it is ordered that all attempts to exercise civil office and power under any supposed city election within the city of Norfolk and its environs must cease, and the persons pretending to be elected to civil offices at the late election and those heretofore elected to municipal offices since the rebellion must no longer attempt to exercise such functions. And upon any pretense or attempt so to do, the military commandant at Norfolk will see to it that the persons so acting are stayed and quieted meanwhile governor pierpoint had appealed by a memorial to the president and enlisted the sympathy and assistance of the attorney-general of the united states who on july eleventh wrote the president a long official letter setting forth his sense of the serious military encroachment by general butler upon civil law and the authority of pierpoint as the governor of virginia To this, in turn, under date of August 1st, General Butler responded with a letter of forty pages in caustic criticism of Pierpoint's government and administration as a useless, expensive, and inefficient thing, unrecognized by Congress, unknown to the Constitution of the United States, and of such character that there is no command in the Decalogue against worshiping it, it being the likeness of nothing in the heavens above, the earth beneath, or the waters under the earth. The General then extended his anima aversion to attorney general bates accusing him of a plot to create a conflict between the civil and military authorities in the quarrel each party accused the other of aiding and being aided by only secessionists and traitors and the arguments of each passing beyond questions of fact entered on the discussion of theory and constitutional law It was easy for President Lincoln to see that the controversy, though involving a grave constitutional principle, was begun in anger and spite, and had degenerated into an interchange of epithets. He did not allow it to ruffle his temper, occupied as he was at that time with vastly more serious matters. The contention had already pretty well exhausted itself when, on the ninth of August, he drafted with his own hand the following reply to General Butler. "'Your paper of the blank about Norfolk matters is received.' as also was your other on the same general subject, dated, I believe, sometime in February last. This subject has caused considerable trouble, forcing me to give a good deal of time and reflection to it. I regret that crimination and recrimination are mingled in it. I surely need not to assure you that I have no doubt of your loyalty and devoted patriotism, and I must tell you that I have no less confidence in those of General Pierpoint and the Attorney General." the former at first as the loyal governor of all virginia including that which is now west virginia in organizing and furnishing troops and in all other proper matters was as earnest honest and efficient to the extent of his means as any other loyal governor the inauguration of west virginia as a new state left to him as he assumed the remainder of the old state and the insignificance of the parts which are outside of the rebel lines and consequently within his reach certainly gives a somewhat farcical air to his dominion and i suppose he as well as i considered that it could be useful for little else than as a nucleus to add to the attorney general only needs to be known to be relieved from all question as to loyalty and thorough devotion to the national cause constantly restraining as he does my tendency to clemency for rebels and rebel sympathizers but he is the law officer of the government and a believer in the virtue of adhering to law coming to the question itself the military occupancy of norfolk is a necessity with us if you as department commander find the cleansing of the city necessary to prevent pestilence in your army street lights at a fire department necessary to prevent assassinations and incendiarism among your men and stores wharfage necessary to land and ship men and supplies a large pauperism badly conducted at a needlessly large expense to the government and find also that these things or any of them are not reasonably well attended to by the civil government you rightfully may and must take them into your own hands but you should do so on your own avowed judgment of a military necessity and not seem to admit that there is no such necessity by taking a vote of the people on the question nothing justifies the suspending of the civil by the military authority but military necessity and of the existence of that necessity the military commander and not a popular vote is to decide and whatever is not within such necessity should be left undisturbed In your paper of February, you fairly notified me that you contemplated taking a popular vote, and if fault there be, it was my fault that I did not object then, which I probably should have done had I studied the subject as closely as I have since done. I now think you would better place whatever you feel is necessary to be done on this distinct ground of military necessity, openly discarding all reliance for what you do on any election. I also think you should so keep accounts as to show every item of money received and how expended." the course here indicated does not touch the case when the military commander finding no friendly civil government existing may under the sanction or direction of the president give assistance to the people to inaugurate one one is always surprised at the ease with which the president took up these cases of contention between his officials and by a few sentences pointed out the law and the remedy with such clearness as to make it seem that a child ought not to have erred in the original decision but more admirable still is the benignant and charitable spirit with which he overlooks and excuses the vanity and petulance which so frequently produced them in this case he only expressed blame to himself for the annoyance and labor growing out of the defective judgment obscured by bad temper of those whose duty it was to have relieved him from the burdens of this character but even after mr lincoln had written this generous correction he felt it wiser not immediately to send it and delayed doing so until he learned that General Butler was about to repeat his error. On the 21st of December following, the President again wrote him. On the 9th of August last, I began to write you a letter, the enclosed being a copy of so much as I then wrote. So far as it goes, it embraces the views I then entertained, and still entertain. A little relaxation of complaints made to me on the subject, occurring about that time, the letter was not finished and sent i now learn correctly i suppose that you have ordered an election similar to the one mentioned to take place on the eastern shore of virginia let this be suspended at least until conference with me and obtaining my approval the main interest to history in these letters of the president to general butler consists in the direction that he must keep his acts and orders clearly within the authority of military necessity and leave undisturbed the existing structure of civil government except where the former was imperatively needed to transcend or temporarily supersede the latter but quite as distinctly as this positive direction to the general is the silent but significant implication in these letters that in the absence of such military necessity the civil authority of governor pierpoint must continue to be recognized as the executive authority of the state of virginia or in other words that so far as the executive department of the government of the united states was concerned Virginia was a state in the Union, notwithstanding her pretended secession, notwithstanding the division of the state by the erection and admission of West Virginia into the Union, notwithstanding the limited territory controlled by Federal troops, notwithstanding the limited power exercised by Governor Pierpoint. Though the governor's dominion might have a farcical air, and be useful for little else than as a nucleus to add to it nevertheless was such a nucleus and useful for that purpose and was therefore neither to be ignored nor destroyed the president exhibited the same consistency of opinion and tenacity of purpose in regard to the other states which had begun the work of reconstruction his letter to general steele to give the government and people of arkansas support and protection notwithstanding congress had refused to admit her senators and representatives to seats has been quoted and he applied the same policy to Louisiana, the question of whose restoration to the Union remained a prominent issue before Congress. As in the case of Virginia, it was not alone the malcontents in Congress and in politics who gave the President annoyance in this matter. General S. A. Hurlbut had temporarily succeeded Banks in command at New Orleans, and to him Mr. Lincoln was forced to send an admonition somewhat more peremptory in its tone than was habitual with him under date of november fourteenth eighteen sixty four he wrote few things since i have been here have impressed me more painfully than what for four or five months past has appeared as bitter military opposition to the new state government of louisiana i still indulged some hope that i was mistaken in the fact but copies of a correspondence on the subject between general canby and yourself and shown me to-day dispel that hope a very fair proportion of the people of louisiana have inaugurated a new state government, making an excellent new constitution better for the poor black man than we have in Illinois. This was done under military protection directed by me in the belief, still sincerely entertained, that with such a nucleus around which to build, we could get the state into position again sooner than otherwise. In this belief, a general promise of protection and support, applicable alike to Louisiana and other states, was given in the last annual message during the formation of the new government and constitution they were supported by nearly every loyal person and opposed by every secessionist and this support and this opposition from the respective standpoints of the parties was perfectly consistent and logical every unionist ought to wish the new government to succeed and every disunionist must desire it to fail its failure would gladden the heart of Slittle in europe and of every enemy of the old flag in the world Every advocate of slavery naturally desires to see blasted and crushed the liberty promised the black man by the new Constitution. But why General Canby and General Hurlbut should join on the same side is, to me, incomprehensible. Of course, in the condition of things at New Orleans, the military must not be thwarted by the civil authority. But when the Constitutional Convention, for what it deems a breach of privilege, arrests an editor in no way connected with the military... The military necessity for insulting the convention and forcibly discharging the editor is difficult to perceive. Neither is the military necessity for protecting the people against paying large salaries fixed by a legislature of their own choosing very apparent. Equally difficult to perceive is the military necessity for forcibly interposing to prevent a bank from loaning its own money to the state. These things, if they have occurred, are, at best, no better than gratuitous hostility, I wish I could hope that they may be shown to have not occurred. To make assurance against misunderstanding, I repeat that in the existing condition of things in Louisiana, the military must not be thwarted by the civil authority. And I add that on points of difference the commanding general must be judge and master. But I also add that in the exercise of this judgment and control, a purpose, obvious and scarcely unavowed, to transcend all military necessity in order to crush out the civil government, will not be overlooked and a similar admonition, though in somewhat less imperative phrases, the President felt impelled to send to General E.R.S. Canby, who had been placed in command of the military division of West Mississippi. He wrote him as follows, under date of December twelfth, 1864. I think it is probable that you are laboring under some misapprehension as to the purpose, or rather the motive, of the government on two points, Cotton and the new Louisiana State Government it is conceded that the military operations are the first in importance and as to what is indispensable to these operations the department commander must be judge and master but the other matters i mentioned i suppose to be of public importance also and what i have attempted in regard to them is not merely a concession to private interest and pecuniary greed as to cotton by the external blockade the price is made certainly six times as great as it was and yet the enemy gets through at least one-sixth part as much in a given period say a year as if there were no blockade and receives as much for it as he would for a full crop in time of peace the effect in substance is that we give him six ordinary crops without the trouble of producing any but the first and at the same time leave his fields and his laborers free to produce provisions you know how this keeps up his armies at home and procures supplies from abroad for other reasons we cannot give up the blockade and hence it becomes immensely important to us to get the cotton away from him better give him guns for it than let him as now get both guns and ammunition for it but even this only presents part of the public interest to get out cotton our finances are greatly involved in the matter the way cotton goes now carries so much gold out of the country as to leave us paper currency only and that so far depreciated as that every hard dollar's worth of supplies we obtain we contract to pay two and a half hard dollars thereafter. This is much to be regretted, and while I believe we can live through it, at all events it demands an earnest effort on the part of all to correct it. And if pecuniary greed can be made to aid us in such effort, let us be thankful that so much good can be got out of pecuniary greed. As to the new state government of Louisiana, most certainly there is no worthy object in getting up a piece of machinery merely to pay salaries and give political consideration to certain men, but it is a worthy object to again get louisiana into proper practical relations with the nation and we can never finish this if we never begin it much good work is already done and surely nothing can be gained by throwing it away i do not wish either cotton or the new state government to take precedence of the military while the necessity for the military remains but there is a strong public reason for treating each with so much favour as may not be substantially detrimental to the military Meanwhile, Congress had met on December 5th in its annual session, and the question of Reconstruction was occupied in various forms, the thoughts of members and senators, though not with the same earnestness as during the summer session, when personal and factional politics bore so large an influence. Henry Winter Davis, whose Reconstruction bill Lincoln had declined to sign, was, since that action had been sustained by the President's triumphal re-election, nursing his vindictive wrath and quiet. And allowed another member of the special committee on rebellious states representative j m ashley to introduce a new bill in the house on the fifteenth of december the bill was open to the principal objection for which the president had vetoed mr davis's bill in declaring a wholesale emancipation of slavery in rebellious states by act of congress but it contained a few modifications designed to conciliate opposition to it one of them being a direct recognition of the reconstructed government in louisiana though with singular inconsistency it failed to embrace that of arkansas which could make at least as good a showing it soon became evident to the committee that it could not be passed in this form nor if passed approved by the president and on the sixteenth of january eighteen sixty five mr ashley offered a substitute for it in which the committee tended a further compromise by including arkansas and louisiana under certain conditions the measure again meeting opposition from republicans in this form its consideration was postponed to february first and again delayed until february eighteenth before which day mr ashley gave notice of further modification induced as he explained by the passage of the thirteenth amendment but the rapidly changing political conditions were with equal rapidity changing political opinions on february twentieth representative henry l dawes whose position as chairman of the house committee on elections had enabled him to study the reconstruction question with particular care attacked mr ashley's bill in a vigorous speech declaring that no form can be prescribed, no law laid down here, no unbending iron rule fixed by the central government for the governing of that people or prescribing the method in which they shall make their organic law. Each of them shall work out that problem for itself and in its own way. That form and system which is best adapted to Louisiana and Arkansas is quite different from that which is ultimately to be adopted in South Carolina and Georgia commenting on the difficulties which the committee had encountered in coming to a conclusion satisfactory to themselves he stated that this was not only the fourth regular draft submitted by them but that a fifth draft had been prepared and already printed by the house after a strong plea in favor of the voluntary action of the people in their own localities he urged that reconstruction should be recognized whenever any one of these states comes up here presenting a constitution republican in form the workmanship of the loyal men of the state and which is generally acquiesced in by them and they have power enough within themselves to maintain it against all domestic violence after further discussion mr ashley offered still another substitute apparently the committee's fifth draft which contained the most sweeping concession the special committee had yet made to the varying currents of political thought its last section provided that if the persons exercising the functions of governor and legislature under the rebel usurpation in any state heretofore declared to be in rebellion shall before armed resistance to the national government is suppressed in such state submit to the authority of the united states and take the oath to support the constitution of the united states and adopt by law the third provision prescribed in the eighth section of this act and ratify the amendment to the constitution of the united states proposed by congress to the legislatures of the several states on the thirty-first day of january eighty eighteen sixty five it shall be lawful for the president of the united states to recognize the said governor and legislature as the lawful state government of such state and to certify the fact to congress for its recognition provided that nothing herein contained shall operate to disturb the boundary lines of any state heretofore recognized by and now represented in the congress of the united states this section which under the supposed miraculous conversion would have required the president in tennessee for instance to recognize the government of governor harris and his rebel legislature instead of governor johnson and his loyal convention as the legal government of tennessee was certainly a strange proposal from a faction which had denounced the president's plan among other reasons on the score of its dangerous leniency it was the exact result which mr lincoln in his letter to governor johnson of september eleventh eighteen sixty three had declared must not be The little speech which Mr. Ashley made in support of his changeling was spiritless and perfunctory. He said, with evident frankness, It is very clear to my mind that no bill providing for the reorganization of loyal state governments in the rebel states can pass this Congress. I am pretty sure that this bill, and all the amendments and substitutes offered, will fail to command a majority of this House. Henry Winter Davis rallied, but feebly, to the support of his discomfited colleague, His short speech was noticeable only for its continued accusation of the President as a selfish usurper, and for his ill-natured flings at his Republican colleagues of the House, who had changed their minds or refused to vote with him, as being influenced by the will of the President, and prone to act upon the winking of authority. With all his recognized logic and eloquence, Mr. Davis was one of those men who possessed the comforting faculty of seeing that everybody but himself was arbitrary, selfish, and subservient the undecided vacillating and shifting propositions of the committee demonstrated even more than discussion the impolicy if not the impossibility of effecting reconstruction upon any rigid preconceived theory the house was unwilling to follow a leadership either of the committee as a whole or of henry winter davis as its inspiring genius since neither could apparently frame a plan to suit itself for a single week scarcely a single day at a time but even had there been unity of opinion the session was too near its end for legislation of this character and gravity and at the close of the debate the bill and amendments were laid on the table by a vote of ninety one to sixty four with twenty seven not voting the subject was momentarily revived on the following day by a substitute for a house bill reported from the judiciary committee providing that no insurrectionary state should elect representatives to congress until among other conditions by a law of Congress such state shall have been declared to be entitled to representation in the Congress of the United States. A spirited debate followed, and Mr. Ashley again endeavored to substitute for it his defeated bill of the day before, slightly altered. But the House had had enough of the topic, and once more, by a vote of yeas 80, nays 65, not voting 37, laid the bill and its amendment on the table. In the Senate, the question came up in a somewhat different form, the legislature of Louisiana had, in October 1864, elected United States senators who presented their credentials at the beginning of the session, and their claim was referred to the Judiciary Committee of the Senate. The chairman of the committee, Lyman Trumbull, appears to have conferred with the president and, as was natural, to have asked his opinion. Mr. Lincoln wrote him the following reply, on January ninth, 1865, which considering the accusations of dictatorial intentions leveled at him by radical senators and representatives of the Wade-Davis type, is most remarkable in its entire omission of any intimation that might even savor of attempted executive influence on the legislative department of the government. The paper relating to Louisiana, submitted to the Judiciary Committee of the Senate by General Banks, is herewith returned. The whole of it is in accordance with my general impression, and I believe it is true— but much the larger part is beyond my absolute knowledge as in its nature it must be all the statements which lie within the range of my knowledge are strictly true and i think of nothing material which has been omitted even before general banks went to louisiana i was anxious for the loyal people there to move for reorganization and restoration of proper practical relations with the union and when he at last expressed his decided conviction that the thing was practicable i directed him to give his official cooperation to effect it On the subject, I have sent and received many letters to and from General Banks, and many other persons. These letters, as you remember, were shown to you yesterday, as they will be again if you desire. If I shall neither take sides nor argue, will it be out of place for me to make what I think is the true statement of your question as to the proposed Louisiana Senators? Can Louisiana be brought into proper, practical relations with the Union sooner by admitting or by rejecting the proposed Senators? on the eighteenth of february senator trumbull made a report from his committee submitting a joint resolution that the united states do hereby recognize the government of the state of louisiana inaugurated under and by the convention which assembled on the sixth day of april a d eighteen sixty four at the city of new orleans as the legitimate government of the said state entitled to the guarantee and all other rights of a state government under the constitution of the united states He stated that though the facts in the case of Louisiana and Arkansas were very similar, the committee had thought it more advisable to act upon the case of Louisiana separately, and, if the joint resolution were agreed to, the same course could be applied to any other state. Though the session was nearing its end, there was an evident desire by nearly all the Republican senators to pass the resolution, but a violent opposition to the measure on the part of a small minority of them developed itself at the very outset as the parliamentary custom of the senate does not embrace the use of previous question it was comparatively easy for this minority to postpone debate and action this opposition was led by senator sumner whom trumbull openly charged in the senate with being in a combination here of a fraction of the senate to delay the important business of the country associating himself with those whom he so often denounces for the purpose of calling the yeas and nays and making dilatory motions to postpone the action of this body upon what he says is a very great public measure. Sumner practically admitted the charge, answering, The question between the senator from Illinois and myself is simply this. He wishes to pass the measure, and I do not wish to pass it. He thinks the measure innocent, I think it dangerous, and, thinking it dangerous, I am justified in opposing it, and justified, too, in employing all the instruments that I can find in the arsenal of parliamentary warfare. Senator James R. Doolittle further defined the situation by stating, There are but five who usually act with the administration who are making and voting for these dilatory motions, and there are 18 of the friends of the administration opposed to them. It is scarcely necessary to add that, in the pressure of public business then existing, this minority of five, at least three of whom, Sumner, Wade, and Chandler, were second to no one in obstinacy of purpose, were able to defeat the measure. The Journal of the Senate shows that on February 27th the subject, by a vote of 34 to 12, was postponed to tomorrow, and its tomorrow did not come during the remainder of the session, which closed at noon on the 4th of March, 1865, with Mr. Lincoln's second inauguration. Though representatives could be querulous and senators obstinate, the president could be persistent, as he had shown by his treatment of the Reconstruction Act and his correspondence with his generals and continued persistence on his part was plainly justified by the rapidly waning opposition to his views in both houses of congress but new and important events were also daily strengthening his attitude since the adjournment of congress he had visited the army under grant witnessed its start on its final campaign and taken part in the first step of its triumph by his personal visit to the conquered rebel capital he had barely returned from that visit to his duties at washington when on sunday the ninth of april there came to him the culminating news of lee's surrender the end of the rebellion was obviously so near that it would soon be necessary to take up the question of reconstruction in a form more practical and more urgent than had yet confronted him the popular excitement over the victory was such that on monday the tenth crowds gathered before the executive mansion several times during the day and called out the president for speeches twice he responded by coming to the window and saying a few words which however indicated that his mind was more occupied with work than exuberant rejoicing as briefly as he could he excused himself but promised that on the following evening for which a more formal demonstration was being arranged he would be prepared to say something accordingly on tuesday evening april eleventh mr lincoln made his last public address reading to his listeners a carefully written paper which was almost entirely devoted to a discussion of the question of reconstruction as recommended in his various official documents and as practically tried in the louisiana experiment we quote almost the whole of it as furnishing the shortest and clearest explanation of both his past and future intentions but these intentions were not destined to be realized before the lapse of a week the nation was in sorrow over his death and the subject and experiment of reconstruction was resumed and carried on under widely different conditions and influences which it is not the province of this work to bring into comment or comparison after a few words of joyous congratulation the president said By these recent successes, the reinauguration of the national authority, Reconstruction, which has had a large share of thought from the first, is pressed much more closely upon our attention. It is fraught with great difficulty. Unlike a case of war between independent nations, there is no authorized organ for us to treat with. No one man has authority to give up the rebellion for any other man. We simply must begin with and mold from disorganized and discordant elements nor is it a small additional embarrassment that we, the loyal people, differ among ourselves as to the mode, manner, and measure of reconstruction. As a general rule, I abstain from reading the reports of attacks upon myself, wishing not to be provoked by that to which I cannot properly offer an answer. In spite of this precaution, however, it comes to my knowledge that I am much censured for some supposed agency in setting up and seeking to sustain the new state government of Louisiana." in this i have done just so much as and no more than the public knows in the annual message of december eighteen sixty three and in the accompanying proclamation i presented a plan of reconstruction as the phrase goes which i promised if adopted by any state should be acceptable to and sustained by the executive government of the nation i distinctly stated that this was not the only plan which might possibly be acceptable and i also distinctly protested that the executive claimed no right to say when or whether members should be admitted to seats in congress from such states this plan was in advance submitted to the then cabinet and distinctly approved by every member of it one of them suggested that i should then and in that connection apply the emancipation proclamation to the theretofore accepted parts of virginia and louisiana that i should drop the suggestion about apprenticeship for freed people and that i should omit the protest against my own power in regard to the admission of members to congress But even he approved every part and parcel of the plan which has since been employed or touched by the action of Louisiana. The new Constitution of Louisiana, declaring emancipation for the whole state, practically applies the proclamation to the part previously accepted. It does not adopt apprenticeship for freed people, and it is silent, as it could not well be otherwise, about the admission of members of Congress, so that, as it applies to Louisiana, every member of the Cabinet fully approved the plan. The message went to Congress, and I received many commendations of the plan, written and verbal, and not a single objection to it from any professed emancipationist came to my knowledge until after the news reached Washington that the people of Louisiana had begun to move in accordance with it. From about July 1862, I had corresponded with different persons supposed to be interested in seeking a reconstruction of a state government for Louisiana. When the message of 1863, with the plan before mentioned, reached New Orleans, General Banks wrote me that he was confident that the people, with his military cooperation, would reconstruct substantially on that plan. I wrote to him and some of them to try it. They tried it, and the result is known. Such only has been my agency in getting up the Louisiana government. As to sustaining it, my promise is out, as before stated. But as bad promises are better broken than kept, I shall treat this as a bad promise and break it whenever I shall be convinced that keeping it is adverse to the public interest. But I have not yet been so convinced. I have been shown a letter on this subject, supposed to be, by an able one, in which the writer expresses regret that my mind has not seemed to be definitely fixed on the question whether the succeeded states, so called, are in the union or out of it it would perhaps add astonishment to his regret were he to learn that since i have found professed union men endeavouring to make that question i have purposely forborne any public expression upon it as appears to me that question has not been nor yet is a practically material one and that any discussion of it while it thus remains practically immaterial could have no effect other than the mischievous one of dividing our friends as yet Whatever it may hereafter become, that question is bad as the basis of a controversy and good for nothing at all, a merely pernicious abstraction. We all agree that the succeeded states, so called, are out of their proper practical relation with the Union, and that the sole object of the government, civil and military, in regard to those states, is to again get them into that proper practical relation. I believe that it is not only possible but in fact easier to do this without deciding or even considering whether these states have ever been out of the union than with it finding themselves safely at home it would be utterly immaterial whether they had ever been abroad let us all join in doing the acts necessary to restoring the proper practical relations between these states and the union and each forever after innocently indulge in his own opinion whether in doing the acts he brought the states from without into the union or only gave them proper assistance, they never having been out of it. The amount of constituency, so to speak, on which the new Louisiana government rests, would be more satisfactory to all if it contained 50,000 or 30,000 or even 20,000, instead of only about 12,000 as it does. It is also unsatisfactory to some that the elective franchise is not given to the colored man. I would myself prefer that it were now conferred on the very intelligent and on those who serve our cause as soldiers. Still, the question is not whether the Louisiana government, as it stands, is quite all that is desirable. The question is, will it be wiser to take it as it is, and help to improve it, or to reject and disperse it? Can Louisiana be brought into proper practical relation with the Union sooner by sustaining or by discarding her new state government? Some 12,000 voters in the heretofore slave state of Louisiana have sworn allegiance to the Union, assumed to be the rightful political power of the state held elections, organized a state government, adopted a free state constitution giving the benefit of public schools equally to black and white, and empowering the legislature to confer the elective franchise upon the colored man. Their legislature has already voted to ratify the constitutional amendment recently passed by Congress abolishing slavery throughout the nation. These 12,000 persons are thus fully committed to the Union and to perpetual freedom in the state, committed to the very things and nearly all the things the nation wants, and they ask the nation's recognition and its assistance to make good their committal now if we reject and spurn them we do our utmost to disorganize and disperse them we in effect say to the white man you are worthless or worse we will never help you nor be helped by you to the blacks we say this cup of liberty which these your old masters hold to your lips we will dash from you and leave you to the chances of gathering the spilled and scattered contents in some vague and undefined when where and how if this course discouraging and paralyzing both white and black has any tendency to bring louisiana into proper practical relations with the union i have so far been unable to perceive it if on the contrary we recognize and sustain the new government of louisiana the converse of all this is made true we encourage the hearts and nerve the arms of the twelve thousand to adhere to their work and argue for it and proselyte for it and fight for it and feed it and grow it and ripen it to a complete success the colored man too in seeing all united for him is inspired with vigilance and energy and daring to the same end grant that he desires the elective franchise will he not attain it sooner by saving the already advanced steps toward it than by running backward over them concede that the new government of louisiana is only to what it should be as the egg is to the fowl we shall sooner have the fowl by hatching the egg than by smashing it again if we reject louisiana we also reject one vote in favor of the proposed amendment to the national constitution to meet this proposition it has been argued that no more than three-fourths of those states which have not attempted secession are necessary to validly ratify the amendment i do not commit myself against this further than to say that such a ratification would be questionable and sure to be persistently questioned while the ratification by three-fourths of all of the states would be unquestioned and unquestionable i repeat the question can louisiana be brought into proper practical relation with the union sooner by sustaining or by discarding her new state government what has been said of louisiana will apply generally to other states and yet so great peculiarities pertain to each state and such important and sudden changes occur in the same state and withal so new and unprecedented is the whole case that no exclusive and inflexible plan can safely be prescribed as to the details and collaterals such exclusive and inflexible plan would surely become a new entanglement. Important principles may and must be inflexible. In the present situation, as the phrase goes, it may be my duty to make some new announcement to the people of the South. I am considering and shall not fail to act when satisfied that action will be proper. End of chapter Nineteen.